Are we good? Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask you to you know, keep your Bibles open. We're going to be, as we talk through this text, we be pointing out some things in the text. So I really appreciate the, uh, the bulletin insert. That's got the, uh, the, uh, the New King James Version, I think. Um, so apologies to the King James person. Uh, I'm more used to preaching from the New King James. Uh, that's just because of our church. During the Olympics, I don't know how many of you were watching the Olympics this year. Uh, there was a widely played commercial. That was actually one of the favorites of my wife. It was about a uh, U.S. Paralympian swimmer, a Paralympian being a handicapped person, a Paralympian swimmer named Jessica Long. She was born in Siberia. She had a condition, a, a rare condition called fibular hemimelia. Uh, it's a condition where you are born without your fibula uh, or with a shortened fibular bone. Uh, basically, the only treatment, she was born like this, the only treatment for uh, an infant this way is amputation. So when Jessica was 18 months old, she had both of her legs amputated from the, from the, from the knee down. Now, she's from Siberia. I don't know if the tr stories are true. I've never been there myself. But I figure life in Siberia is hard to begin with. But for this young girl, who at 18 months was a double amputee, who because she was a double amputee, her teenage parents, her parents were 15 and 16. They didn't want her. And so they put her in an orphanage. So you can imagine for this young girl, double amputee and an orphan in Siberia, life was going to be near impossible. Except when two American parents named Beth and Steve Long came and adopted Jessica. They brought her to the United States. They provided a loving home for them. They were by her side as she went through 25 more surgeries on her legs. They brought to rehabs where after each of these surgeries, she had to relearn how to walk. They provided her with Normal activities, I'm not sure what the word is supposed to be, but normal activities that non-disabled kids uh, had, especially sports. They encouraged her to play sports, and she played all kinds of sports, including her favorite sport, which was mermaid in the pool. She liked to play mermaid in the pool. Eventually, this mermaid became a world and Paralympian champion to the tune of more than 50 medals. I think the number is 50 or 51. This was all possible because she was adopted. It's only possible since she was adopted. When she was adopted, she received a second chance. She received a second life. You could say she received a new life. She was able to leave her old life, and she was able to live now a new life. Who? can imagine Jessica now thinking, I would like to go back to live my old life versus my new life today. In today's text, we have something very similar. Uh, as we read in verse 7, God talks about us becoming heirs by his grace, but him saving us out of his mercy and love so that we can become justified and also become heirs 
of eternal life. That word heir in scripture, in the historical context, has the sense of adoption. And just like Jessica Long, when we become heirs of eternal life, we get a second chance, a second life, a new life. And it's a life that's so wonderful that it would be utter stupidity for us to try to go back to live the old life or identify with it. And yet this is exactly what's going on in church today. In evangelical and reformed churches, people are saying, we ought to identify with our old life. We ought to identify and be proud of our old life. So this is what we're going to talk about today. Our new life. What does it mean to have a new life? To be an heir of eternal life. Uh, with just two very simple uh, points to, to, to break down this passage. We'll talk about the before picture. The before picture and then the after picture. Okay, the before picture and then the after picture. The before picture, uh, if everybody could look at verse 3. This is what the Bible says in verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Uh, whenever I'm preaching and you come to a list like this, these are always a challenge <laughs> because there's many things that are written and the temptation is to kind of gloss over them. Um, the temptation is also this. We actually live in a world where we don't really talk about sin anymore. Uh, it's interesting that we're out here in the outdoors and people are walking by and I figure, why not? Let's talk about sin. Because we minimize it. We sanitize it. Even when we do talk about it in church, it's glossed over. So when we sing, uh, see a string of words like this in verse 3... Uh, we sometimes have a hard time picturing the depravity that's being described. Now, for my regular job, I, I, I work, I'm a tent maker. I work at the public defender's office of Montgomery County. I'm a paralegal. My job is when people commit crimes and they get arrested, they get locked up in jail, I'm sent by my office to do that initial interview with people. So I'm there almost a day or two after they're arrested, put in jail, and I interview people and I talk to them about what happened. Uh, every day, I see the reality of sin. Sometimes I see the bottom of the pit. Really, sometimes I see the bottom of the pit. Now, let me give a caveat, right? We live in a country where you're presumed innocent until you're proven guilty. Everybody has that right. However, just by percentages, not everybody is going to be innocent. There's got to be some percentage of the people that I talk to who really did the scummy things that they did. They give us a real good picture of what these words mean. For example, foolishness. Uh, the other day, I think it was two weeks ago, I talked to this woman who had a string of petty thefts. She would go into stores and steal baby lotion, diapers, and whatnot so that she could resell them because she had a drug habit and she needed money to keep up with a drug habit. Now, we fought hard for her. The attorneys in our office tried and tried to persuade the judge, look, she doesn't need jail time. Her root problem is drugs. So release her to treatment. And so the judge listened to us. The judge released her. She was free one day. She was free one day. The second day, 
Actually, it was July 4th, so this was a month ago. I remember because it's July 4th. On July 4th, she went back into the store and she stole. Now, the thing of it is, when she stole, she was with her boyfriend who had bought her $200 worth of stuff in the cart. So it wasn't like she didn't have money. She had $200 worth of stuff in the cart. The boyfriend bought that for her to start a new life. And she said, nope, I'm going to do something foolish. I'm going to steal. Disobedient. Uh, this past week, I spoke to a man who was accused of making terroristic threats against his family and wife. Those are, you know, according to the law, those are sort of minor charges. But when you get into the weeds of it, they are horrific details. He's accused of making terroristic threats on the phone against his wife and family. During the interview, now I stress to him, I'm here to help you. But he lost his temper at me. And he started making threats at me. And I'm thinking to myself, sir, if you do this in front of the judge, disobedient. Serving various lusts and pleasures. I talked to a man maybe two days ago who admitted that he liked to watch porn on his phone. Now, he was a man who was uh, an immigrant, and he lived in one of these houses where they rented out rooms to different families. So he has several families living in a house together. One of these families had two young girls, two pre-teenage girls. He was caught watching porn. This man, unrelated man, was caught watching porn on his phone by one of the girls. Now, he told me that this was not a big deal because the girls knew how to watch porn on their own. In fact, sometimes he would let the girls borrow his phone so that they could watch the porn that he was watching. And he told me this all matter of fact, as if nothing was wrong. Nothing was wrong. Serving various lusts and pleasures. As a culture, we have become desensitized to sin. We see it normalized every day in the media, movies, TV shows. We see it excused away by society. Basically, the cogs, the various cogs of society, all try to um, steer people towards the most lenient type of sentence, towards treatment or whatnot. It's the reason why this list of words in verse 3 sometimes doesn't have the impact on us that it should. But here's a second problem. If we, even when we are able to see the reality of sin, we still might be tempted to say, well, that's those other people. But that's not me. Right? That's other folks. I'm not as bad as they are. You know, I saw on your website that you used to go evangelism do evangelism around town twice a week. Do you still do that? I bet when you go and evangelize, one of the very top, uh, I don't know, oppositions to the gospel is, I'm not that bad of a person. Okay? I want us to notice what Paul is doing in these verses. Notice at the beginning of verse 3, Paul begins by saying, we ourselves were also once like this. He's not saying those wicked Cretans, 
are like this. So you go talk to them about their sin. He's saying we ourselves. And Paul also uses that word we, meaning not just Paul, but Titus and the co-workers and the other elders who are church leaders and maybe church members, maybe good citizens. Paul says we ourselves were also once like this. How can this be? Well, we need to always remember the biblical perspective. Right? When we did the Old Testament and New Testament reading, this was the this was John the Baptist's point in Matthew 3. Right? People, Pharisees, were coming to him to get baptized. Pharisees are notorious for pointing out other people's sin, but not their own. Hypocrites. Right? And what was John's rebuke to them? You brood of vipers. Right? Have repentance have fruit in line with repentance meaning look at your own sin and repent from those bear good fruit because the messiah is coming and judgment he's the ask the axe is on the root right that's that's what we read think about what jesus said on the sermon on the mount if you hate your brother that's like committing murder matthew 5:25 if you look at a woman lustfully you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. We tend to think, even when we get the reality of sin, we tend to, you know, I do this also. When I talk to people, I tend to say, come home and say, wow, at least I'm not as bad as that. I do that. But we need to realize that no matter how wide the gap is between that I think exists between me and the other person the worst person no matter how wide that gap is wider is the gap between us and a holy god wider is that gap remember the words of isaiah isaiah 64 all of our righteousnesses and that's a plural there righteousnesses all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags when he says filthy rags that's in terms of a leper, somebody who's got leprosy, who's got, you know, bands of cloth around him that are soiled. All of our righteousnesses, plural, are like filthy rags in front of a holy God. That is our before picture. That's before. This is the after picture. Beginning in verse 4 all the way to the end, you see that there is a very clear transition Okay, I'm going to read verses 4 to 5. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Underline that first word in verse 4. But that's the transition. That's the clear flip from old to new. But uh, on your website, I saw one of the pictures was Al Baker had visited you guys. Was that after COVID? Was that before COVID? Or that was before COVID? Okay, Al Baker, a friend of the church, I guess. Uh, Reverend Al has a favorite. He has two favorite words in scripture. I don't know if he shared that with you. Two favorite words in scripture. But God. Well, here in verses four and five, you don't get exactly two words. You get more than two words, but basically you get the same idea. But God, you have a very similar idea but when the kindness and love of god our savior toward man appeared 
not by our works, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. There's a clear transition. Basically, verses 4 and 5 describes grace. Right? It's not our works that caused our salvation, but it's solely because of his mercy, his love, the thing that he did that saved us. And the grace that we see in verses 4 to 5 produces a clear transition from old life to new life. You see that very clearly in the text. Verse 3, old life. Verse 4, but God. Verse 5 to 7 describes our new life in Christ. Now, entailed in this new life are two main things. We're only going to focus on one today. Both of them are very important, but we're just going to have time to focus on one. All right. The first main thing, which we're just going to talk about briefly, at the beginning of verse 7, the first part of verse 7, the Bible says that we have been justified. Now, I'm not glossing over that. It's just for the sake of time, we don't, you know, we're not, we're only going to cover this briefly. But our justification is a part of our new life, and it's a wonderful thing, right? Justification meaning that all of us have a penalty of sin. We all have fallen short of God's glory, and we all justly deserve his punishment and wrath. But instead of doing that, he sent his son as our substitute, as our sacrifice, to die in our place, to take our punishment in our place. So that that punishment is exhausted and, on the other hand, Christ's righteousness is now counted to me. Whereas now I can stand in front of God's judgment throne and be declared righteous. Not because of, as the verse says, oh, thank you. but people related to the church, grandmothers, elderly parents. Um, usually when that happens, somebody has a will and they bequeath their inheritance to an heir. Okay, so when, we, then when the Bible says heir, that's what we think of, somebody who inherits something. But there's a, actually a deeper meaning to this New Testament usage of this word. Uh, it has to do with Roman times. You know, Paul's time, Jesus' time. You have these Roman emperors or kings not all of them were very, always very successful at making male children to be heirs. And a lot of times, the parents weren't very happy with their heirs. They weren't very happy with their sons. And so what would happen is some of these emperors would pick out a servant in their household or a, a military leader or a commander that they liked who was unrelated to them by blood but then they would adopt that person. That person would become their heir. And that person would become the rightful lineage to, to the throne. So that word heir has the idea of adoption. To be an heir of God means that we are adopted by him. It means that we who were once his enemies have now been drawn into his family, right? As Peter says, 
We who were once far off, you were not a nation. Now you are a priesthood of God. You've been brought into his temple and now you serve him. You are adopted. You are part of his family. Uh, Part of that means that very much like Jessica Long, we had an old life, but because God adopted us, we get to leave that old life behind. And we get a new life, a second chance. As much as Jessica's life changed at her adoption in earthly terms, the Bible describes much more of a change when we get adopted into God's family. There is a clear transition from old to new. Give you another indicator of this clear transition from old to new, and that's in verse 5. If everybody would look at verse 5, the second part of verse 5 there, uh, we get what's called the mechanism or the instrument of that change, right? The instrument of the change from old to new. Verse 5, second part says, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, When the Bible uses these words, regeneration and renewing, we're talking about a sovereign, monergistic act of God. Monergistic just means that it's God alone who does it, not us. God alone who does this. Regeneration and renewing are sovereign, monergistic acts of the Holy Spirit to give us new life. Meaning, it's God 100% and us 0%. Uh, sometimes when I see evangelistic literature, uh, I'm not saying that this is wrong. I'm only saying it's wrong illustration to describe regeneration, right? I don't know if you've ever seen this. You reach up halfway, God sees your need, and he reaches down and he grabs you. You reach up halfway, and God reaches down halfway, and you kind of meet in the middle. I'm saying that's useful in some instances, but it's not a good picture of regeneration because that's still you doing half and God doing half. I'll give you a better picture of regeneration. Remember when Peter and the disciples were in the Sea of Galilee and there was a storm and then far off they see an apparition. Who is that? And Peter says, that's the Lord. And on a whim, he gets out on the water and he starts to walk. Now, I'm not blaming Peter. I'm not criticizing him. We're not making fun of him. Because he's the only guy in the history of the world besides Jesus who ever walked on water, right? Paul never did. Moses never did. Noah never did. Okay, Peter did. Walked on water a couple steps. And then what happened? He starts to drown, fall into the sea. He has no way to save himself. He is utterly helpless. How is he saved? Jesus reaches down all the way, grabs him, and lifts him up all the way. 0% Peter, 100% Jesus. That's the picture of regeneration. I'm not saying Peter got regenerated at that moment. I'm saying that's a nice picture of regeneration. In other words, regeneration and renewing are powerful words. They're powerful because that's what they mean. They're powerful because of what Scripture teaches, that Ephesians 2, while we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. It's powerful because of the one acting. It's God, the Holy Spirit. You know, in our Old Testament readings, we read Ezekiel. 
you looked at that passage where God was promising a renewal of everything. Does that sound like an easy thing or like a teeny-weeny act of God or, or a, a magnificent, powerful act of God? When we sang the psalm, Psalm 72, about the rains coming down, realize this is a, a tropical climate, right? We've had summer rains. They're not like spring or, or, or fall rains. Summer rains, when they come, when those clouds come and the rain comes, it's splash. <laughs> okay? And everything gets wet. Right? That's the picture. That's the picture of God's power in regeneration. Now, why are we talking about this? These are basic, right? You've heard this before. You've been taught this before. The reason why we're talking about this is because there is a lie going around in many churches, many evangelical and reformed churches. There's a lie about this doctrine. And the lie basically says this. It begins this way. Um, Martin Luther, during the Reformation, Martin Luther came up with a phrase, Latin phrase one time, simul justice et peccator, which means while we are, we are at the same time saved and still a sinner. Martin Luther's point, and it was a right point, it was a biblical point, was God saves us not because of our own righteousness. When I'm saved, I still don't have my own righteousness, but I am saved because of an alien righteousness imputed to me. I am simultaneously justified and still a sinner. Simul justice et peccator. That was Martin Luther's point, and that was a good point, biblical point. Problem is, some people today are starting to take that and twist it. They take that phrase and they twist it. And basically, they, what they say is this. There is nothing because, you know, since I am saved and still a sinner, they take it a step further. There is nothing wrong with me identifying with my old self. Whatever my old sin was, there is nothing wrong with me identifying that way. I hope I don't offend anybody. Uh, mainly, this is coming out of the LGBTQ movement in the church, where people are saying there is nothing wrong with identifying as same-sex attracted. In fact, you should be proud of it. Because that's how God made you, and when he saved you, you are simul justice et peccator, which means you still, you know, are able and should be proud of identifying that way. We talk about the powerful, clear transition from old to new because of this. I don't want us to be deceived. There is no way for someone who has undergone that powerful transition from old life to new, there's no way for that person who has experienced that power to say, I still want to be with the old. Um, I know it's hot. When it's hot, I think of a gym shower. You know, sometimes you go to the gym, you exercise, and you get all sweaty and nasty and icky. But you jump into a gym shower, hopefully it's a nice gym. You know those gym showers are not like your home showers. Your home showers kind of trickle down and they're fine. Those gym showers, they, they come at you. It's like a hose for an animal, right? They, they, they really sting your, your skin. So you're under there for like two minutes. And what happens? You come out, you know, it might hurt a little bit. But you come out feeling fresh. You've come out feeling clean. There's no way 
you can stand under a gym shower and come out of it and say, huh, I still feel sweaty and icky and nasty. Right? You come out of it a different person. It's the same with our new life. The power of the Holy Spirit that changes us, yes, transitions us from an old to new life, that's just as powerful. It's so powerful, in fact, that no one should be willing to say, I'd rather identify with my old self. Now, let me say this. I'm not saying we'll be perfect, right? The doctrine of sanctification teaches that there will always be imperfection in our sanctification. That's why it's called progressive. There will be imperfection up until the day I get up to heaven and Jesus raises me and this body of flesh dies, literally dies, and you know I get raised a new body. However, sometimes in churches we err, we only focus on the imperfect part of sanctification, and we don't focus on the power part of sanctification, right? The doctrine of sanctification also says we have the ability, the power to live a new life. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. If you've crucified your old man, how can you still identify with him? Why keep that alive? Jesus is saying, whatever it is that you dealt with in the past, be it lying, lust, pornography, same-sex attraction, covetousness, whatever, that has been crucified with Christ. It's dead. It's on the table. It's not moving. So why are you identifying with it? Galatians 5, 22, 24. By the fruit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We know this verse. Gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Next verse. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If something is crucified, how do you still, why would you go and revive it and, 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 you know, shock it back to life and carry it around with you? Today's message is a basic message, but I share it with you because I don't want you to be deceived. You know, this is, unfortunately, this is being peddled by some really big names in evangelical and reform circles. I won't say the names here, but you know, they're huge names. But make no mistake, this is a lie. It's a lie. It's, it's palatable because it's cloaked in a false compassion. They, they lie like this because they say, well, this is how you get to be compassionate toward those broken sinners. No. How you really get to be compassionate to broken sinners is, hey, there is a second chance. You get to leave your old life, start over new in Christ. That's compassion. Imagine what it would be like if someone today tells Jessica Long, you're not a 50-time Olympian. You're not a world champion. That's your new self. That's you having an over-realized eschatology. What, what that means is, you know, when, when, when people 
are argue against having a new life, they say, well, that's too rosy a picture of salvation. We're still too imperfect here. Imagine telling Jessica Long that she's over-realizing her hope. You ought to be your old self. You ought to still identify as a Siberian orphan, double amputee, where your parents didn't want you. Imagine somebody telling Jessica that that ought to be your identity, and you ought to be proud of it. Carry that with you, and whenever you introduce someone, you know, yourself to someone, say, hey, nobody wanted me, and both my parents left me. You would hope that if Jessica hears that, she would say, well, she would ignore it. She would jump back into the pool and win her next medal. In other words, you would hope that she would ignore all of that stuff and continue living her new life. That's basically what we ought to do with our new life. Ignore all that stuff and continue living our new life. We are heirs of eternal life, and we ought to live that way. May God give us the grace to live out our new lives.